President Richard Nixon declared illegal drugs to be public enemy number one in 1971, beginning this nation's war on drugs. Now, with almost 50 years of failure, waste, and criminal justice mistakes in the name of that war, is the end of this disaster finally in sight? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system. And every day, more grateful than ever for that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Before going any further, a brief correction. In a news bonus posted here on Monday, November 23rd, I said that District Attorney Larry Krasner of Philadelphia was re-elected this year. I misread some information I found during my research. Mr. Krasner will run for re-election in 2021. Thanks to alert listener Rob for pointing this out. Now, go back almost 50 years to 1971. Richard Nixon was president, heading for an election battle in 1972. In his first three years as president, he had continued the Vietnam War. Opposition and unrest over the war had helped to elect Nixon by weighing down his 1968 Democratic opponent, Hubert Humphrey, in 1968. But that opposition had increased under President Nixon, who had said in 1968 during the election that he had a secret plan to end the war. Well, three-plus years into his administration, it was still a pretty big secret. As a way to discredit opposition to the war among young people and to stigmatize and damage black Americans, the two groups among whom opposition to Nixon was strongest, the president and his men declared a war on drug abuse in 1971. Drug abuse was public enemy number one, Nixon said. According to John Ehrlichman, one of Nixon's closest aides who commented about this many years later, the strategy was clear. Nixon and his crew considered the anti-war left, the hippies, and American blacks their enemies. By declaring war on drugs and associating both groups with the use of cannabis, they painted both groups as criminals to be arrested by the police and crushed and jailed by the state. Drugs like heroin and cocaine had been criminalized for decades, since 1914, and cannabis since the 1930s. But Nixon took this effort to new heights for his own political benefit. Here's Nixon on June 17, 1971, that announcement declaring the war on drugs. The audio is from the Richard Nixon Foundation. Check it out. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad wherever they are in the world. It will be government Notice there Nixon's own words, public enemy number one, hearkening back to the worst 
criminals of yore, like John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde. It would be an offensive, just the same as any military campaign. And it would be worldwide taking on not just suppliers, but users. Users would be the primary targets. But Nixon was far from alone. President Ronald Reagan amped up the war on drugs as if it were his own. Who can forget the Just Say No campaign? Not to mention those crushing federal mandatory minimums we discussed in episode 127 with Kevin Ring of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. All those under Reagan in the 1980s. And then there was President George H.W. Bush, using a bag of crack supposedly purchased by an undercover officer across from the White House as a prop on national television during a presidential speech. Well, it may not have been a real war. War may have been a metaphor. But hey, the drug warriors picked the metaphor, and if we take their words at face value... We can truly say it has been America's longest war, outlasting the Civil War, First and Second World Wars, Korean and Vietnam Wars combined. And there's simply no argument that it has been the biggest, most colossal failure of any war the country has ever been in. Think about it. Millions stigmatized with criminal convictions. Hundreds of thousands jailed some for a night, and others for a lifetime. Billions upon billions of dollars spent on police, prisons, and an entire federal bureaucracy created, the Drug Enforcement Administration, costing billions itself and billions more in wasted human potential. Billions that could have been spent to treat addiction instead of fed into the giant maw of an insatiable criminal justice system that created the world's largest prison population with vast racial disproportions. Families and communities torn apart, particularly communities of color. The destruction and waste has been endless, not to mention the deep and lasting damage to our constitutional and legal systems, which have been permanently warped by this misadventure. Another thing that has been endless, the supply of illegal drugs. The only thing criminalization and prohibition of drugs and interdiction of drugs seems to accomplish is sometimes, in the short term, to drive up the price of these substances when local supply becomes tight. But overall, illegal drugs are more plentiful and easier to get than they were at the start of this war. Nevertheless, our leaders, presidents, congressmen, senators, and directors of federal agencies and state police agencies and all others down the chain have remained resolute. They vowed to win this utterly hopeless war. It's the people of this country who have wised up to this. Beginning in 1996, with the passage of a ballot measure in California legalizing cannabis for medical purposes only, a slow march began in baby steps, in which that state, California, then a few more, then a few more, began to change laws on cannabis. It was almost always through direct referendum in which regular folks could change the law 
by their own votes. 16 years later, in 2012, Colorado and Washington State legalized the possession and sale of cannabis for all purposes, again, through direct voter referenda. In the eight years since, the momentum has clearly shifted. A clear majority of Americans want cannabis legalized, and they think the war on drugs has failed. And now here we are in 2020. The votes held in November of 2020 did not just elect a president and a Congress. They might show that at last it's time to move beyond the war on drugs everywhere. Today, we'll discuss how we got here and where we go next with a guest who helps influence these very questions. Matt Sutton is the Director of Media Relations for the Drug Policy Alliance. For decades, the Drug Policy Alliance has been one of the leading organizations in the world dedicated to ending the war on drugs. The organization's mission, it says, is to attain, quote, a just society in which the use and regulation of drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights, in which people are no longer punished for what they put into their own bodies, but only for crimes committed against others, close quote. Prior to joining the Drug Policy Alliance, Matt handled communications for non-governmental organizations such as the Southern Poverty Law Center and the International Fund for Animal Welfare. His work in community organizing started even earlier in his hometown of El Paso, Texas, where he handled communications in 2012 for the congressional campaign of an obscure underdog candidate named Beto O'Rourke. O'Rourke's campaign for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, which included his then-controversial views about ending the war on drugs, managed to defeat an eight-term incumbent, and Matt then went on to run communications for Representative Beto O'Rourke on Capitol Hill. Matt Sutton, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you've come. Let's start with the Drug Policy Alliance, just for a little more background. Uh, has the organization been engaged in a long-term strategy uh, on drugs, on drug legalization or decriminalization? Describe that strategy to us. Yeah, sure. And I mean, you know, I mean, things have definitely evolved over the years. And so it's hard to say that it's been one unilateral strategy all that time. Um, you know, for decades, we've been involved in this work. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, as we've seen, like the work has evolved, um, you know, and we, as we've made more progress, I think the strategy has shifted, you know, back um, two decades ago, it was hard to talk about legalizing marijuana, that seemed like a very radical idea. And even, you know, legalizing medicinal marijuana, um, you know, and, and, and today, you know, we're talking about decriminalizing all drugs. And, you know, and we just recently successfully did that in Oregon um, by a 17 point margin. So <laughs> I think, you know, as all of those things happen, the, the strategy um, for good reasons has to shift. 
Right. I cannot wait to talk about the changes in Oregon, but let's take it a step at a time here. I think, you know, what my, most people might remember as the sort of first crack in the Great Wall, if you like, of the war on drugs, we're mixing our metaphors here, uh, might be the legalization of cannabis for medical purposes. And I think the first state to do that uh, 24 years ago, oh my God, it can't be that long, but it is, uh, was California. In 1996, um, tell us about that. Why medicalization? Why take that route as the first step? Right, and I think you know that in 1996 was really, again, you know that was when we broke through, and you know similar to you know now where we're creating new cracks in the foundation of the war on drugs, you know, that was really that initial crack. And that was, DPA was definitely very involved in, in Prop 215, um, you know, which uh, legalized medicinal marijuana in California back in 1996. But, you know, I definitely want to give credit to where credit is due also, that that was largely lit, uh, led by uh the gay community in california you know um they were struggling with hiv and aids at the time and you know one activist uh dennis perone was really kind of the leader in that uh his partner who had died of aids had actually used medicinal marijuana to treat his symptoms and you know really kind of uh you know to honor his legacy that was really how dennis perone got involved in the work you know and was first doing it uh, at the local level in San Francisco and then really forged ahead, you know, to uh, with a, a statewide ballot initiative uh, that DPA did support. So, you know, I think that just goes to show kind of, you know, that this has always been driven. Um, you know, a lot of the earliest drug policies like the ones that today have been driven, you know, uh, as a means of, of furthering public health. And that was definitely the case then. And I think, you know, um, that is important too, because, you know, it, it, with people seeing the benefits of, you know, various different drugs, they're able to kind of look away from the, the stigmatizing view that has been created by the war on drugs, you know, as you illustrated with the Nixon uh, administration, you know, it was never about the drugs themselves when the Nixon administration declared the war on drugs, it was really about going after communities of color and Vietnam War protesters. And, you know, he couldn't go after either one of those groups specifically for those reasons. So they, you know, the loophole was to target drugs and people who used the drugs. Um, and, you know, so I think, you know, breaking that apart by like really looking at things how they are in terms of you know, how this could um, benefit public health is, is very important. And that's what we saw with medicinal marijuana. And, um, you know, as it expanded out, eventually people became more open to the idea of, you know, legalizing marijuana for adult use as well. Now, by 2010, roughly how many states had legalized medical cannabis at that point? Yeah, so by, by my account, there were 15 states that had legalized medicinal cannabis by, 20, uh, by 2010. 
See, that's that's very significant. We move uh, from one state in 1996 to, to 15 in 2010. That's about one a year. And that was the first year, if I'm remembering the history right, that we had a ballot referendum up to vote. And this was, again, California as the pioneer to legalize cannabis for all purposes. And it went down to defeat. Um, Why was that? What lessons were learned? Because, of course, things changed just a couple of years after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely, I think, you know, it's part for the course. Um, lots of times when initiatives like this that are, you know, really the, the first one, um, you know, lots of times they're not successful. And um, but I think they're critical in kind of, you know, building the groundswell of support for them. I think, uh, you know, particular to this measure, at the beginning, you know, it really seemed like there was enough support for it to pass. But then really the no on 19 campaign, which was, you know, the opposition to it really was like towards the end, you know, about a month out from the actual election, they were rolling out endorsement after endorsement from literally every major candidate for statewide office in California, uh, including, you know, uh, Jerry Brown and uh you know, Senator Barbara Boxer. So they were really, I think that that was really, you know, what led to that shift at the end um, where, you know, going into the election, it was down by about 10 points. So I I don't think that it was unexpected um, that that was not going to prevail in the end. But again, like I said, uh, you know, it definitely was important in, in terms of building that support for the initiative. So then when we went back, uh, you know, in 2012, it was a lot easier to get that passed, you know, and in not in, of course, not only in California, but also in Colorado at the same time. So, um, you know, I think that really shows, you know, how this is, um, you know, even, even when the initiatives are not necessarily successful, you know, they are important in really like building the groundwork. And you know, that was something that we knew was very possible, even, you know, in this Oregon initiative, you know, we were like, there's a good chance that it, it may not pass. Um, but even if not, you know, we've, we've started the conversation, you know, we've started the work and um, we'll, we'll come back to it, you know, we'll, we'll continue on and, and eventually it will pass. Like, you know, these things are inevitable, um, you know, especially when they are like grounded you know, in, um, you know, just logic and, and science, I think that eventually they will prevail. Right. So when we come to the next set of initiatives, that's 2012. I remember Colorado, Washington being, uh, having their ballot initiatives on in that year. And both of those passing, those were the first two successful ones out of the gate. Was California in the same year or did it come a little bit later? I forget. No, sorry. I, <laughs> um, I, I misspoke. Yes, uh, it was Colorado and Washington that passed in 2012. California ended up passing in 2016. Right. So we've got our first two states uh, legalizing cannabis for all purposes in 2012. Uh, we have brand new legal structures that come from this set of changes. 
And with that, um, we get to observe in real time uh, this changeover in two states. Um, and uh, the structures that emerge from that, you've got cannabis being sold legally in uh, state-owned, I'm sorry, not state-owned, but state-regulated stores. There are taxes on cannabis, um, but the federal government is still in the drug regulation game in those two states. So how is that reconciled uh, in those years? And, and, and where did that take us? Yeah, I mean, it was complicated then and, and it <laughs> continues to be complicated today even. Um, but definitely it was more complicated at that time where you know, there were cases of the DEA raiding, um, you know, state legal marijuana dispensaries, uh, you know, and it wasn't happening all the time. I mean, you know, there's always been that, you know, the federal government trying to kind of respect states' rights, but, uh, you know, it definitely did happen. And there was really, you know, for these businesses that were legal on the state level, they really didn't have the kind of protection that they needed, you know, and, and one of the biggest challenges too has always been banking, you know, and that continues, banking. To, be, uh, that continues to be a challenge today, but it was even more of a challenge before where there was literally no place that these businesses could store their money. So you literally had businesses <laughs> storing money under the mattress or in a back room that was locked, you know, which is obviously creating very dangerous situations, um, you know, but because banks are federally insured, so uh, the banks would not, were not able to accept any kind of money. Uh, you know, I even in my, in one of my past lives, you know, I, uh, you know, I was doing uh, communications for a, you know, a, a PR agency and, you know, we represented, you know, cannabis clients and even for them to pay their retainer was actually challenging <laughs> because they had to give it to us all in cash, you know, like giving us thousands of dollars in cash. And we're like, what do we do with this money? You know, but it was because like they couldn't actually keep money in a bank. So they were trying to give us like thousands of dollars to pay their retainer in cash because they just had no other option. Eventually there was like certain there were certain workarounds um, where they were, they were able to put it into like some certain credit unions and, and things of that nature. Um, but again, it still remains a huge challenge today. Yes. So that's essentially where we end up with states. Now we have over 10 states uh, with, uh, with the, uh, legalized cannabis. We have four more in the November 20 election. And these are not, um, these are not what one would all call blue states. There was New Jersey, but there was also Arizona, Montana, and South Dakota, all four of them legalizing recreational and other uses of cannabis fully. Even the state of Mississippi, perhaps the most conservative state in the nation, uh, uh, legalizing medical cannabis. And the momentum seems unstoppable. Let's let me just turn the discussion a little bit. One thing we haven't talked about is the role that 
drug laws have played for years in the criminalization of people of color and especially black Americans and the damage that has been done in those communities uh, by cannabis prohibition. What role did that play in the Drug Policy Alliance thinking strategies, campaigns? What role does that play now? Totally. And I think, you know, the Drug Policy Alliance has really been the one that has led this conversation, you know, that has really said, hey, we can't legalize marijuana. We can't decriminalize marijuana. We can't look at, you know, undoing these drug laws without also looking at how we're going to undo the harm that's been caused to, you know, communities of color, low-income people, um, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, so that's really where we're focused today. And, you know, we've been focused for a while now. And, you know, in the beginning, you know, we had a lot of supporters that I would say, you know, were more libertarian leaning that were not always necessarily on, 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 Board with this, you know, there's a lot of people that are all about, you know, being able to use drugs and, you know, be able to smoke marijuana if they want, but, you know, can't reconcile those harms. And in and we've really led that conversation that says, no, you know, these things go hand in hand. We can't do one without the other. We cannot pass a legalization bill without thinking about how we're going to expunge records how we're going to resentence people, how we're going to make sure that the people that have been harmed by prohibition have a role to play in the new legal economy and are the ones that are profiting out of it. You know, it is not fair that we have places like in Colorado, um, you know, where that was not as big of a concern and we have these rich white men entrepreneurs that are making all these millions of dollars off of the legal sales of marijuana while we still have these young black men in southern states that are sitting in prison for possessing marijuana that is not fair and we just can't have that so you know that's something that the drug policy alliance has fought tooth and nail and i think you know we've been very successful in leading that conversation where i don't think like now, it isn't that politically viable for a state to push a marijuana legalization bill that doesn't include social and racial justice provisions. And, and so we're very proud of that work. We're speaking with Matt Sutton. He's the director of media relations for the Drug Policy Alliance. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24-7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need, when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad 
we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed, and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus, with Simply Safe, there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe, S I M P L I S A F E that's simplysafe.com/injustice Hi, we're back. It's David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice. And our guest is Matt Sutton. He's the Director of Media Relations for the Drug Policy Alliance, one of the leading organizations in the fight against the drug war uh, for decades now. Matt, uh, as we were discussing before the break, uh, issues of racial equity and social justice are playing a role more and more in the legalization conversation. Uh, But uh, you've also referenced the fact that there has been something quite different and innovative and really kind of unexpected that came out of the state of Oregon in the November 2020 election. And I've just been rocked by this myself as a person who's watched the drug war for so many years. Tell us what happened in Oregon. What was on the ballot? What was the outcome? And what are you expecting? Absolutely. Uh, You know, this has been the biggest blow to the war on drugs to date. You know, we in Oregon, we led the successful Measure 110 campaign that decriminalized possession of all drugs and replaced it with access to health services. So treatment, harm reduction, and even things like housing and job assistance. Uh, So this is just, you know, again, really monumental. And we won that initiative by 17 points. So it was a pretty overwhelming win, you know, showing that I think, uh, you know, Americans and, you know, Oregonians specifically are understanding that drug use is something that should not be criminalized, um, but, you know, should be treated more as the public health issue that it is. And I think, you know, just given everything that's been happening in the United States, you know, we have uh, approximately 70,000 people that are dying of accidental overdose per year. And then even with the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen the health disparities that exist in the system, especially among communities of color. And then also we've woken up to these larger racial injustices that exist in the United States. Um, and, And we've seen the way that the drug war plays into those things. We saw the way that the drug war was largely responsible to what happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. 
and so many other people. And so as we are looking at reforming these you know, systems of policing, we have to look at where does it start? And in the United States, more people are arrested for drug possession than anything else in the United States. 23, every 23 seconds, someone is arrested for drug possession. So by eliminating those arrests, we start to eliminate those harmful interactions with law enforcement. And, and it really is like the biggest thing that we can do to start, you know, undermining that harmful system and, you know, replacing it with something better. And the bottom line is criminalizing people does not provide them the help that they need. Providing people access to the health services that they need does help them to get better. And that's really what we're doing in Oregon. You know, we're, we've created a new approach to this. Um, and, you know, and I think we're going to see very much similar to what we've seen in other countries, such as Portugal and Switzerland that have gone this route, uh, that we are going to see, you know, huge benefits, you know, lower rates of overdose, and a lot more people that are voluntarily accessing services. Yeah, this was really an earthquake. That's how I've described it to my students when I've told them about it. Um, the Oregon law will make it not, it, it does not legalize these, the full spectrum of drugs, but it decriminalizes them. And there is a difference. They remain illegal, but there won't be criminal enforcement as long as they are held by a person in small enough amounts to be just considered for personal use. And if I understand it correctly, the, uh, the, the consequences of being found with these substances, and they include all of what we think of as hard drugs, heroin, cocaine, anything, uh, would be a, uh, it would be a civil citation with a $100 fine, or you get the choice to come in for a drug screening and counseling session. Uh, and so this really does change the picture. It's not so much like any other state. It really is. The real comparison is, like you said, to Portugal, which made those same kinds of changes on a, on a national scale back in the early 2000s. And the people who've been with us the longest here in criminal injustice remember that in, sex, in season two, we did a great interview with uh, a gentleman from the uh, Southern California branch of the ACLU about Portugal and its drug laws. So why was a Portugal public health system the target here? And do you expect to have the kind of success that you had in Oregon in other places in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the reason that we used Portugal as a model is because, you know, it really has been the, the best documented case of all drug decriminalization in the world. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, they've been doing this for almost two decades. They decriminalized drugs in 2001. And at the time, very similar to what we're experiencing today with the health crisis, you know, in terms of the overdose crisis, they were dealing with the HIV and AIDS crisis, you know, as, as well as huge, uh, you know, skyrocketing rates of other infectious diseases such as hepatitis. And, you know, they, you know, really wanted to be able to expand access to health services. However, by, you know, criminalizing people was a huge barrier to actually getting them the services they needed, because as long as something is criminalized, you know, people are afraid to seek services because, 
they, they don't want to be arrested or criminalized. There's also a stigma that goes along with something that is criminalized. So, uh, you know, they needed to remove those barriers and, you know, be able to, you know, provide a pathway for people to get the help that they need. And, uh, you know, and it's, again, it's proven to be hugely successful. There's been tons of research that's been done on the model, you know, and it showed that, you know, the rates of HIV and other infectious diseases within just a few years uh, plummeted, as did the rate of overdose. And, you know, the rate of people voluntarily accessing treatment, you know, skyrocketed. So, you know, right now in the United States, we're dealing with a very similar situation. You know, we, again, we have approximately 70,000 people dying of vaccinal overdose a year, including in Oregon, you know, where we have one to two people dying of overdose per year, many of which are dying waiting to get into treatment. Whereas, you know, Oregon ranks nearly last in access to treatment. So people just aren't able to get those services. What we did with Measure 110 is we used excess marijuana tax revenue and law enforcement cost savings um, altogether in excess of $100 million per year to reallocate towards funding these services. And again, not just what you traditionally think of as treatment, but evidence-informed, culturally sensitive treatment, harm reduction services, and other things too, such as housing assistance, job assistance, so that we can really, uh, you know, uh, meet the full range of people's needs and be able to provide them the care that they need. You know, quite frankly, criminalizing people just isn't doing that. And even forcing people into things, um, you know, like mandatory rehabilitation or drug courts, that too is not giving people the kind of treatment um, care that they need. You know, lots of times those services are really absent of, of real health professionals. And, um, you know, people, that are being directed into those programs are people that don't want to be there. And so, you know, they're largely fighting it and not being able to get the help that they need versus, you know, the people that do want to get the help they need can't actually get into the services. Um, so that's a huge problem. Yeah. You know, this now, anybody that wants access to services, regardless of whether or not they are, you know, caught with possessing drugs, you know, that's, one way that you can, you know, be directed towards services, but by no means do you have to be caught with drugs to walk right into one of the addiction recovery centers and do your own health assessment and be connected with services. And there will no longer be any barrier to being able to actually afford services. Anybody that wants and needs services will be able to access. Now, that's a huge change. I, I hope listeners understand how big a shift that is to a fully funded public health model. Where do you see the possibilities going forward for uh, a repetition of this level change? What states, uh, where, where are you targeting next with this kind of effort? Totally. And, you know, what, what we've known would happen, uh, you know, if, if this was successful is that we would see a cascade of efforts across the country and, and even more broadly, you know, across the world that, um, you know, would, would replicate these efforts to, you know, really try to center public health and people over criminalization. And, you know, we're already seeing that largely take effect. 
Uh, you know, so there's efforts underway currently in Washington, uh, California, Vermont, and in the United States Congress as well. Um, in, the, in Congress, DPA actually released a federal framework for all drug decriminalization. And, you know, very similar to what, you know, we've done in Oregon, um, but of course, you know, would be on the federal level uh, and would also do stuff, you know, like dismantling the DEA because that would be necessary. But, uh, you know, we've already received a lot of legislative interest from that. And we have actually secured a house sponsor. I can't say who it is yet, but what I can say is that that bill will be introduced either by the end of this year or at the top of the 2021 session. So I think, you know, that's really positive. Um, you know, I can't say that it's going to be like, oh, you're going to introduce it in Congress and we're just going to like pass it very easily. But what I can say is that that is so critical that like, you know, we're able to have that kind of support um, already. And then we can start building much broader support at the federal level, as well at this, as at the state level. Um, you know, the efforts underway, like in Washington, I think, you know, they're trying to get that uh, decriminalized through the legislature in 2021. And I think it's very possible you know, especially just seeing the support from Oregon, you know, Washington is in that same region. Um, a lot of the political ideologies are very similar. And so I think it's very likely that that could happen. In California, DPA has been very active in trying to push this through the legislature. And, you know, even be, we've been involved too um, at the local level, even, you know, working with local DAs, to try to, uh, you know, push for decline to prosecute policies, that kind of thing. Um, you know, we've we've also um, pushed uh, initiatives at, you know, the city council level. And, um, you know, we've been working with state legislators. So, you know, we do plan to sponsor an all drug decriminalization bill in the California legislature this session as well. Interesting. So I was going to ask you about federal efforts, too, and I'm glad you've spoken about the bill. Um, and, and it's interesting to hear about the sort of uh, local to national strategy that you're that you're uh, working through. So, I mean, you know what? What's so striking about this, Matt, is with the exception, I think, of Illinois, where a cannabis was legalized by a legislature and maybe Massachusetts, where it was legalized, I think, through a court decision. The rest of legalization and decriminalization has has happened through ballot measures. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what it tells me is that the people in this country are way ahead of the leadership in this country, the political leadership. And so often, if you go back into history, you find that when something starts to be successful uh, through uh, popular support, politicians want to jump into the head of the parade and start to lead it. Why has that not yet happened here? Do you expect that to happen here? Maybe I just don't know. And maybe it is gaining some support. And I can point to my own lieutenant governor here in Pennsylvania, uh, he's been in favor of a total legalization of cannabis here in Pennsylvania uh, for quite a long time. And he's made a lot of noise about it, especially with the legalization of cannabis in a neighboring state, New Jersey, in this election. Uh, so what is it that's finally going to turn the tide to get not just 
popular support, which all of these things clearly have, as demonstrated through votes and, of course, polling, but political support from those who have the power to pull the levers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And let me just say, you know, I love uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. He's the the greatest. (laughs) He's the best. You know, I love him. Um, you know, and uh, you guys are definitely lucky to have him there in Pennsylvania, um, you know, and and hopefully him and the governor, you know, can get uh, the other legislators on board to actually, you know, pushing through something in Pennsylvania, especially, I think, you know, now that it, it will be legal in New Jersey, there's a little bit of a, you know, a push to make sure that the tax revenue isn't, you know, going across the border, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is something that I've been saying over and over, you know, that there it seems to be that legislators are a bit tone deaf, honestly. You know, two thirds of Americans now support marijuana legalization. Um, You know, we're not seeing that same support, unfortunately, from, you know, legislators. You know, I I I. I think, you know, more and more that we are seeing increased support, but we're definitely not seeing it to the same level. And, and you know, what this most recent election showed us is that Americans, you know, by and large support drug policy reform. Every single drug policy reform measure that was on the ballot passed, um, you know, and most by like pretty large margins. And again, as you pointed out, even in very conservative states like Mississippi, South Dakota, Montana, you know, this is like, this isn't a red or a blue issue, you know, it's a bipartisan issue. And it's something that, you know, really, all Americans um, are largely in agreement on. And so it is surprising, you know, that we haven't um, been able to push forward more at the legislative level. I mean, New Jersey is a perfect example of this, because the Drug Policy Alliance actually, you know, had an office in New Jersey for, you know, nearly two decades and you know we've been working on uh uh marijuana reform in the state for you know most of that time and uh you know but but trying to push it through at the legislative level and then you know here we are we finally get something on the ballot in 2020 and it passes with two-thirds uh majority you know so it, it definitely tells you that there's a disconnect between what the people actually want and what the legislators are doing. And so I I really do hope that this election was a wake up call, you know, that like, if you're, you know, I mean, look at the headlines. Every, you know, every media outlet in this country is reporting that drugs won the election. We couldn't agree on a president, you know, but we could agree on drugs. (laughs) And, um, you know, so I, I hope that that message does get reflected in like the upcoming legislative sessions. I will say too, you know, we're actually expecting a vote on our federal marijuana legislation, the MORE Act, um, which would completely remove marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act and um, give back to the communities that have been most harmed by prohibition. So we're actually hoping that that vote will take place um, right after Thanksgiving. Um, you know, we're still waiting on a confirmed date for that vote. But, you know, pointing to this whole fact of like, you know, legislator support, that vote was supposed to happen in September. But, you know, some of these moderate Democrats feeling the pressure of Republicans, um, you know, got cold feet, 
And they ended up having to push the vote until after the election, which, you know, to me is shocking because it's like, look, you know, two thirds of Americans support marijuana legalization. Maybe this actually would have helped you. You know, drug policy reform was more popular than either of the presidential candidates in most jurisdictions. So, I mean, you know, come on, you know, for any politicians out there listening to this, it's like, you know, get on board. You know, this is not, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the far issue, like the, this isn't the radical issue that it once was. Like today, this is an issue that's mostly rooted in, you know, ending these racial disparities and that everyone can agree that nobody should be arrested for marijuana, you know, much less any drug. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, it is time that, that our politicians get on board with that. That's Matt Sutton. He is director of media relations for the Drug Policy Alliance, and he's been our guest today on Criminal Injustice. Thanks very much, Matt. It was good that you were here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Division. And on this edition, we update you on a recent report of a lawyer and judge behaving badly. That would be Judge Mark Tranquilly of the Common Pleas Court of Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, right here in Pittsburgh. You may recall that Judge Tranquilly became the subject of a bar complaint because... After a drug trafficking trial resulted in a not guilty verdict, Judge Tranquilly took both lawyers back into his chambers for a little private chat. In this less-than-formal atmosphere with no jurors, no other officials, and most important of all, no court reporter, but just us boys, that would be Judge Tranquilly and two white lawyers, one the prosecutor and one the defense lawyer, Judge Tranquilly felt free to let loose. He unloaded on the prosecutor for failing to exclude from the jury one juror, a black woman in a head wrap, who Judge Tranquilly referred to as, quote, Aunt Jemima, invoking the racist stereotype of the black servant from the antebellum South who had long served as a symbol of hospitality on bottles of maple syrup. He made several other remarks that made clear that he saw clear associations between the, quote, Aunt Jemima juror, drug trafficking out of wedlock births, and the fact that this juror no doubt had a black domestic partner who sold drugs. What Judge Tranquilly had not counted on was that these two white men in his little in-chambers racist remarks club would find his remarks offensive and unacceptable, just as any decent person would, white or black. They reported him to the bar and then other examples of Judge Tranquilly's um, judicial temperament were easily found in records from his years on the bench, in which he showed that these attitudes as well as his utter contempt for defendants, was not unusual. These remarks became part of the complaint against him, too, and Judge Tranquilly faced the possibility of actually losing his judgeship. 
So here's the update. On November 17, on the eve of his trial before the Judicial Conduct Board, Judge Tranquilli resigned. In doing so, he stipulated to the accusations made against him. That is, he agreed to the facts stated in the complaint and did not contest them. And he agreed that he would never seek nor accept an appointment to the bench again. According to one source, there were certain pluses to this resignation for pension or retirement purposes, as opposed to what would have happened if he was found guilty of the charges and removed from office. So, seeing the handwriting on the wall, he became former judge Tranquilly. The outcome was welcomed by Lena Henderson of the Pittsburgh Black Lawyers Alliance, who said it would give black people in Pittsburgh and Allegheny County some reassurance that courts and judges before whom they appear must be fair. Quote, I think this is a very good day, said Henderson. Finally, he has realized that what he did was wrong. Close quote. Amen to that, Miss Henderson. Sometimes it is really just that simple. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly Judicial Division Update, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal legal system? Well, why don't you call in and ask Dave? Call 412-407-3389, leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question, and give us a little contact information, which, of course, we won't share. Again, 412-407-3389. You can also write out your question on our Ask Dave tab on the webpage. Remember that we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. We really appreciate that. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>